Good morning, everybody. It's nice to see you all. It's a beautiful fall morning. It's nice and cool. Sun's out. The colors are particularly vibrant this year, don't you think? Yeah, it's, it's so nice. Uh, it's one of, the, one of the peaks of living in the Midwest, I think, don't you? Yeah. So uh, it's good to, good to have you with us today. It's nice to be here with you. Uh, we're going to take a look today at uh, 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 8 through 37. And a couple of housekeeping things before we get started. So it's unbelievable to think that we're already thinking, talking about Thanksgiving. <laughs> uh, are you all ready? <laughs> Who's hosting Thanksgiving this year? Okay, I see a couple, yeah, okay, yeah. And uh, so as, as we think about November, uh, our class will not meet, so you can just kind of get this on your calendar and, and in your head, our class will not meet Friday, November 18th, or the following Friday, November 25th, I believe it is. So it'll be two Fridays where we won't meet, and then we'll pick it back up for a couple in, uh, at the beginning of Advent, and then we'll break for Christmas. And I'm not sure exactly when we'll break in, in Advent, but I'll let you know. But definitely we won't meet the 18th and the 25th. Okay. Um, that is the, the 25th is the, the day after Thanksgiving. So we will not meet. Yeah, so the 18th and the 25th. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so the Friday before Thanksgiving we will not meet, nor will we meet the Friday after Thanksgiving. And then we'll, then we'll get back and keep rolling. Okay, so today we're going... So we're looking at the Gospels and how the Gospels define our lives. And I think all of you have seen this, or most of you have seen this, but I always, whenever I teach like biblical interpretation, I always do this, for a lack of a better title, I just call it the Lutheran cones because it looks like two Lutheran, or two cones, <laughs> two Lutheran cones, what's a Lutheran cone? Uh, on their sides, okay? And so the Old Testament is the first cone, and then the New Testament is the other cone. And the beautiful thing about this is, and this, this is a theology that you, you don't just see it in, in the Lutheran church, but there's actually a Jesuit, a 20th century Jesuit scholar by the name of Jean Danielu that also taught about this. And uh, you see it in the early church. Uh, you definitely see it in Luther's approach to the Bible. And so everything that happens in the Old Testament points us forward to the life of Christ. Okay? And Everything then in the New Testament that's written after the life of Jesus points us back to that. 
And then we would add that beyond this cone would be the mission of the church. So that, you know, the so-called Great Commission and the church's life springs forward. But this is important for a couple of reasons. One is it's the interpretive lens for the scriptures. So if you want to understand the Old Testament properly, you read the Old Testament in view of the life of Jesus, in view of the Gospels. And then when you read Paul and John and Peter and Luke and all those in the New Testament, they are reflecting on all that Jesus did and taught. And so it's the interpretive lens for the New Testament, Christ and his passion. So when we think about the Gospels are a light for our lives, they illumine everything for us from Old Testament to New Testament to the church's life today. And so what we're going to look at today is an Old Testament account. And I love First and Second Kings. I, I love the period of Elijah and Elisha because they are particularly vibrant. And, you know, I, I mentioned before that if you think about, um, you have Moses and Joshua. Moses is the desert wanderer leading to the promised land and then Joshua brings them in. And then down below, you have John the Baptist. He's the desert wanderer leading us to Jesus, and Jesus is the fulfillment. And, but in terms of uh, the books of Kings, you have Elijah, and then he's the desert wanderer leading to Elisha. So there's a theme where what you see in Moses, you see in Elijah, and you see in John the Baptist. What you see in Joshua, you see in Elisha, and you see in Jesus. So these two are like Jesus figures. And so when we look at this text today, and this is why I love Elisha and the things that, that Elisha does, he looks so much like Jesus at times. And the things, some of the miracles we see come out then in the Gospels. So what we're going to see today uh, with Elisha and the Shunammite woman, Elisha raises her son from the dead. And we see Jesus do this with uh, children and uh, Lazarus. And when I think, so when I think about the church's life, and when I think about the scriptural approach to the church's life, it is highly sacramental. We have a sacramental ethos. And it's important to understand what that means because a sacramental ethos, not every church body has that. Um, a lot of 
a lot of Christianity looks perhaps at the scriptures as uh, more of a moralistic approach or a judicial approach to everything. And there is judicial language in the Bible. Um, you know, the doctrine of justification is what we would call a forensic doctrine of justification, which, you know, it's, it's a judicial, like some of the language in the New Testament is judicial, uh, like being acquitted, you know, to have your sins forgiven uh, is to be acquitted. And so um, when I think about my own life, I think, and I don't know if I ever told you this story, but you know, you've gotten bits and pieces. So I became a Lutheran when I was 22. I'm sure that much you knew. I went through adult catechesis uh, and I had a good pastor that taught well. I, we had two pastors, but I, I didn't have the sacramental perspective of the church for a time. Uh, I thought about God's word as just giving me uh, empirical data that I needed. And I think a lot of Christianity lives in that camp. Like, it's empirical data, it tells us what we need, and then off we go, and we go and we do things, and we go to church and we worship, but why do we worship? Um, the empirical data side, and this is really like modernism, uh, modernism focuses on empirical data and nice, neat categories. And so the empirical data side of, of Christianity would be, all right, here are the scriptures. They teach me everything that I need to know about salvation. And so now I know it. And I'm supposed to serve and give. And I'm supposed to worship. And all this stuff is what we do as Christians. And a lot of people just kind of live right there, right? But the sacramental character of the church is a little different. And so here, here I was, and I don't know if I told you this, if I did just yell out and say, stop, we already know the story. But <laughs> when I was a young Lutheran, I had been confirmed. So I was going to the Lord's Supper and this is kind of like confession and absolution, I think, because I should have known better. But I'm sitting in the, in like the third pew pulpit side, and one of my pastors, I'd been maybe a Lutheran for a year, and one of my pastors was preaching a great sermon on the Lord's Supper. And he was talking about St. Paul and how, you know, if you take it, uh, unworthily, you know, you could take you to your damnation. He's talking about all the contours of the Lord's Supper. And, and he makes this statement about how we are really eating and drinking Christ's body and blood. And it's important to reflect upon that. And, and I started sweating. <laughs> and the reason I started sweating was because for whatever reason, that was the first time it clicked in my head that we believed in the real presence in the Lord's Supper. Somehow, I missed the memo during catechesis. I don't know if I was daydreaming and you know, thinking about what I was gonna do afterwards or what, but I looked over at Stacy, who was sitting next to me to see if this like rattled her cage at all. And she's sitting there like a good Lutheran, just 
just listening, got it, you know, happy, content, peaceful, smile on her face. And then I look down at my in-laws to see if they get a reaction, and they're the same way. And I'm like, what did I miss? And then I really start sweating because he's saying, if you don't discern the body and blood, you could eat and drink to your damnation. And I thought to myself, I'm going, I'm going to hell. <laughs> so now I'm like falling apart in the third pew, you know, pulpit side. And so, you know, the, my problem early on was I didn't realize the sacramental character of the church's life. Because, so what happened to me then was, I had this, it brought me into this existential crisis where I'm thinking about the bread and the wine and how could it be the body and blood of Christ, right? Like, I'm, I'm looking at it going, how could it be, how can it be? And, and I started to like go backwards. And so I met with my pastors and I talked to them a little bit and they helped me a little, but I, I, there, were, there were holes in, in, in my thinking and, and it was causing me trouble. I initially went to seminary not to be a pastor, but to have this question answered. I needed to know you know, how can we understand that it is the body and blood of Christ? How do we understand the sacrament and how can I be at peace with it? And this gets to the bigger perspective of the sacramental character of the church. It's really important that we understand what that means. So what is a sacramental character of the church? The sacramental character is that we understand that there is a lot more happening in the divine service and in the scriptures and in our lives than what we can see. The scriptures aren't just simply giving me, it does give the information that we need for salvation and that is important and I, so I wanna, I wanna make that clear. From that point, though, then we become the recipients of what is promised. So these things start to grab a hold of us. So in the divine service, for example, when we come in, it's like, I just remember Leah last, I don't know if it was in the spring, but your kids were doing a race over there and they were all cov covered with colorful chalk. I don't know what that's called. Color run. Color run? Okay. So, you know, like you start off on, has anybody ever, you've seen this, right? You've done this. Who, who has done the color run themselves? Okay. So you start off and you're, you're in your clothes, right? And, you, and you're, right? And by the time you get done, what do you look like? Yeah, you look like a rainbow. You're just all colored, right? Well, the divine service is more than just giving you information and then saying, okay, scoot along now. You know, it's more than just like giving you the body and blood of Christ and saying, okay, go, go. It's when you go in there, everything that happens is like a color run. And you start off at confession and absolution 
and poof, you're powdered with some color. And then you hear the scriptures and poof, you're powdered with more color. And then you hear the sermon, poof. And then you get to the, the Eucharistic liturgy and poof, poof. And then you, get, you go up for the Eucharist and it just gets dumped on you and poof. And by the time you come out of the church, you are like a rainbow. You've got all the color on you. And that's the sacramental, that's kind of like my analogy or imagery of the sacramental character of the church's life. And, you know, because I, you know, I often get the question, I was, I was meeting with a, a Wheaton College student uh, who's uh, not Lutheran and we're kind of working towards the Eucharist. So there's some catechesis going on. And, you know, she asked a question that, people often ask, what's the difference between getting confession and absolution or uh, you know, hearing the gospel and the sermon versus the Eucharist? And you know, th that's a hard question to answer, right? But the beautiful thing is you get it all. So when you confess your sins and you receive absolution, you receive entire forgiveness of sins, right? There's nothing left. You get the whole gift of forgiveness, right? When you get baptized, you get the whole bit of forgiveness, right? And newness of life. But then you go to the Lord's Supper, you go to the Eucharist, and everything explodes. It's like the Garden of Eden breaks wide open. And this is the life that you are brought into. And so... We, we live in mystery. So I guess part of my point to this, what is the sacramental character of the church and the church's life is, we have been given these divine scriptures which tell us about God and who he is and what he has done and what it means for us, but then it gives it. And I think that is really important to remember. And so we are already participating in heaven's gifts. And so as we look today at Elisha and the Shunammite woman, this is a rich text that will give us the different contours and the different layers of God's love and what it gives to us. We will see it in the narrative as the Shunammite woman receives great blessings. And then we will also reflect on how that is true for us today. It is true for us, particularly in the divine service, and it continues to blossom and flourish in every aspect of your life as you go out each day. So let's take a look at this and we'll work through it. So it's 2 Kings chapter 4, beginning at verse 18. What did I say? Oh, I'm sorry, 8. 
Thank you. <laughs> I don't know. I have trouble with numbers these last couple of weeks. I don't know what's going on here. All right, verse 8. One day, Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him. And he said to him, say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, What then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son, and her husband is old. He said, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway, and he said, At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my Lord. O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, O oh, my head, my head, the father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, Why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, All is well. Then she saddled the donkey, and she said to her servant, Urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All is well. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet and Gehazi came to push her away, but the man of God said, 
leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, Tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him, and if anyone greets you, do not reply, and lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him, The child has not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. And there's the text. It's a pretty lengthy text. And there is a lot, a lot going on there. So a few things that are, are worthy of note for this. So there's two, you think about this and how you have the life of Jesus in the center of the, of the two testaments. And so you think, what does the life of Christ say to this text? How does it inform the text? And so there are two things you could say. One is there is a miraculous birth. A woman who was not able to have a child suddenly does. And we see this several times throughout the Old Testament, right? So here's another one. It's, it's pointing forward to the Virgin Mary and the, and the miraculous conception. We also think about then another motif, which is the raising of the dead. So that's the first thing I would say. Then when we look at the text itself, so in those days you had, particularly with Elisha and Elijah, you had the prophets of Baal. And there was a lot going on with the prophets of Baal and you had problems with kings adopting that Baal worship. And so there was this religious competition in these days between God's prophets and the prophets of Baal. And we saw that with Elijah. But it's, it's at work here too because their way, you know, she lives in a world 
where Baal worship is, is right out in the open. And so she sees, though, that in Elisha, there's some of that color, right? The divine color that's coming out. And so she's a wealthy woman. She has her husband. But every time the prophet comes through the area, she gets this sense that there's something about him, right? He is a prophet of God, and I need what he has to touch my life, right? A little bit of that rainbow color, boom. Dust me just a little bit. When you come, dust me with the grace of God. And so she sets up a room just for him because she wants the blessings that he has to bring. You think about, there's a lot of mystery in this. So think about this in terms of your own life. There are things that God blesses us with that we never asked for. And then when we receive it, we are so thankful, right? This is so great. But in her case, she didn't ask for a son, but in that world, as it says in the text, her husband was quite aged, she had no son, so in that world, if the husband dies and she's alone, she is at a great disadvantage culturally. So it would be a great blessing to have a son, but she never asked. And Elisha, though, blesses her and she has a son. But then the son dies. And I don't know if you've ever had anything like this in your life where you never asked for anything good or you know you, you you didn't ask for something particular but you received it but then later it was taken away and i don't know if you've ever talked to god in those moments and said i never asked for that why did you give it to me only to take it away what's going on I don't understand. I was perfectly fine. And then you showed me something about my life and you, you enriched my life and then you took it away. What's going on? You know, this often happens in people's lives. So the Shunammite woman on some level is like us. And so she wants to know, why did you do this? I was content. So that's one thing going on in, in this text. But then think about Elisha and the situation. So the prophets of Baal were always in great competition with the prophets of Yahweh. So God's prophets do something and then like competition, the prophets of Baal are waiting for it to go sour. And so Elisha's contention would have been, I prophesied that she would have a child. She has a child. Now the child dies. Elisha's concern in that world would have been, 
Now the prophets of Baal will make a mockery of what I did, what the Lord did, and now what do I do? So that's one, one, one piece to the puzzle. What's interesting about this, I mean, there's several things to kind of work through, but one thing that I find fascinating in this is that when she, when the child dies, she gets on a donkey and in verses 22 through uh, 25, for example, she takes off on the donkey. She's going quickly to the man of God. She wants to see him. The husband says in verse 23, it's neither new moon nor Sabbath. In, in the biblical world, it was often that prophecies and, and the good stuff would happen during new moons. Uh, even to the, you know, so for example, a good example of this, I guess, would be in Exodus when, and you don't have to go to this, but you can jot it down if you want. In Exodus 19, it, you, uh, you have the, uh, the teaching of the Lord given to Moses. And it starts off with Israel at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, verse 1. And it says, on the third new moon, this is verse 1 of chapter 19, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. So it's a new moon. It's a harvest. It's a harvest time. And so then in verse 16, it says, On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brings the people out and then in chapter 20, the Ten Commandments are given. So what's happening there is it's a new moon, third new moon, it's harvest time, and this was typically when God would reveal his word. It was a very important time, it was always a very significant time. So in this, yeah, so in, so, yeah, so let's see, good question. Okay, so in verse 18, back to 2 Kings 4, when the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. So there you go. So then, when she calls to her husband and says, in verse 22, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. He said, why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, all is well. So I have a footnote. So you, you bring up a good question. I have a footnote here in the Lutheran Study Bible. that says appointed service times but it doesn't say what's going on here. So that makes me wonder. 
Like, why would they be reaping? Because it would be it would be a harvest time. It does say that it is the completion of an agricultural year. So that's a really, that's a good question. Um, it says he, he, when he was old enough, he went there, but it doesn't say he was going at that moment. Right. When he got old enough, he went. Right. Okay. When the ch- it doesn't say that he's going now. Huh. Yeah, you know what? I don't know the answer to that exactly. Yes? Study notes here say the Sabbath and noon were observed by cessation from work. So maybe it, he was asking her, why, why would you leave now? I can't go with you now. It's not the cessation of work. Maybe. So, so why are you going now? Maybe the new moon was like, coming soon. Maybe it, we're working to get stuff in because when it was done, the new moon would come and you're, you're done. That's true. It does become a time of rest. So that could be what it is. Yes. And, and her saying, all is well, women, I'm assuming, would not travel without their husband at that time. Right. That's true. She's saying, saying, don't worry, all is well, I'm going to go. Yep, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's a good point. Yes. Opposite of that, where he heals when you say you shouldn't. Yes. And this idea of if something needs to be done, God will respond. Yes. Not because of our human time frames. Exactly. That's. He has to kind of glimpse into that. That's what I. That's a really good point too. It's. I think that's probably at work because, yeah, God will bless in spite of whatever human regulations have been laid out, right? Yeah. Yes, Donna. So she believed that that Yes. It's it's just like Jairus, right? With Jairus's daughter dying and he knows that Jesus can help. And so off he goes. Yeah. Yes, Leah. Like a, I thought it was interesting when um, she comes out to Good point. He is Lord, right? Yes. Like Elijah is truly just a prophet. Yes. He has either the Lord has to tell him ahead of time, or he has to ask to know it. Yes. He just just knew, like he knew when somebody has touched his cloak. Exactly. Like he knew who it was. Yeah. To ask God because he is God. That's right. No, that's exactly right. And you do see these differences. Like for example. Uh, if you were to take the raising of Jairus's daughter and superimpose that upon this text, there are a few differences. Like Jesus just says, my child rise and takes her by the hand and gets her up, right? 
Right, exactly. And he's sweating and grunting to try to get this kid to, you know, to come back to life. And, uh, and he has to pray. Yes. Uh, it, I was thinking about um, how Elisha assumes death or takes death on by laying, I mean, this Levitical law would say don't be on dead people, but he almost prostrates himself on this boy. Yeah. Kind of thought, made me think of like ordination, like when Marcus laid himself to death for God on the cold floor. That's right. Subjecting himself to death. Um, yep. So, whereas Jesus doesn't have to do that because he is pure life. So, I don't, I don't know. That's a great point. It's a rabbit trail. But... No, but that's an awesome rabbit trail. I mean, that's exactly right. If you take it back to the liturgical uh, form of, of ordination, like she just said, where the one being ordained lays out flat on the floor, it's like you know, taking upon death. And it, it, is, it is that. That's right. The answer all is well. Yeah. My husband's well. Oh. I'm well. My son's well. So, um, yeah, right. So going both ways. So this goes along with, with the other thing where uh, he says, when you go... Don't meet anyone in verse 29. He says to Gehazi, tie up your garment, take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. If anyone greets you, do not reply. Um, and she's saying all is well because in that culture, it was like a, uh, a strange skit for Monty Python where they would all sit and chew the fat for hours. If you ran into somebody along the road, you would uh, give salutations and exchange niceties and you would do it for a long time and you'd keep talking and it was culturally improper to cut salutations and greetings short on her. Or that she said all as well. Well, but it wasn't. she doesn't want to get caught up with him, oh. Gehazi, because, you know, you know, he's the servant and he's, coming on behalf of the prophet. He's trying to kind of get through him to the prophet. Right. Yeah, he's going to try to be like the buffer. He's the doorkeeper. He is the doorkeeper, yeah. And so she's like, it's, it's all right. It's all right. I'm going to keep going. So the same with her husband. I mean, my child just died and my husband says, is everything okay? Oh, yeah, it's fine. I'm good. <laughs> Why did she not tell her husband? Didn't even know she died? Yeah. Father must have known. Yeah. That's a really, really good question. Except that husbands did the work and mothers took care of us. Or she just had faith, but... Yeah, but the life she had faith that she was going to have it taken care of. Yeah. That she had to get to him to, to get things done. Yeah. So the only thing that I have here, that's a good question that I don't know the answer to. Um, there, there is, there is a lot of that. This is, I mean, but so this is, um, you know, when you think about the cultural differences, you know, it's, it's difficult to understand some of the stuff. Um, the other side of it is, 
there is this sense of mystery uh, to it all. But here's a footnote that just says, her hurry perplexed her husband because it was not the time of a religious festival that required the prophet's presence at a specified time. She did not disclose the reason for the hasty journey. Later, she gave the same answer to Gehazi, not wishing to be detained by him. So evidently, the... The, the editors of the Lutheran Study Bible didn't have an answer for these questions, <laughs> which makes me feel better, but... Don't spread that. I mean, I, I don't know about that day, but I would think in that day, the woman took care of the children, mm-hmm. and she to, she's a woman. She needs to take care of it, as we all do. Yeah. I mean, that's, not, that's not changed to today. I mean... Right. Woman, most women, there's a need, let's take care of it. Keep doing what you got to do because you got to make the money yeah. for us to survive. Take, I'll take care of this. You just keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, right. That could be. Yeah. It almost seemed like Gehazi was an interpreter. Well, he was always sent by Elisha. Mm-hmm. Were there different languages Were there were, that they... I'm sure there were different languages. Um, there, uh, I tried to look up a little bit about Shunem and I didn't see a lot about it. Um, you know, it was close enough to the Holy Land that there were enough commonalities, I think. But, um, I mean, in those days, there were different languages, so. Elijah kept on telling him what to do. Yeah. He would go and do it. I thought maybe the communication that Gehaza spoke a better language to her or something, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. That's a really good question, though. Uh, Yeah, Carol. Um, Isn't a lot of that just cultural? She's a female. He's a man of God. And just culturally, that's possible. Talk directly talk to somebody else. Like, you know, if you go see the king or something, you don't talk to the king. Right. You talk to the king's servants or whoever. Right. It, right. It is like um, an ambassador, in a sense. That's... Yeah. The same thing happens with Elisha and Naaman, the Syrian, remember, with the leprosy? And Naaman comes to, the, to Elisha's door and Elisha sends the servant to the door and says, hey, go, go wash in the Jordan seven times. And of course, you know, Naaman's furious because he wanted to talk to the prophet himself. So there's something about the servant is a representative to the man. And so there is, yeah, I mean, that is, that is at work, but but at the same time, Elisha would go and stay at her house and had a room. So they were separate rooms. It, yeah, it was up above. So, um, I mean, they, I think they did have something of, uh, you know, communication and, and a relationship of some sort. And she must have felt that in order for her to just go, uh, go herself to him. And I mean, she was bold, right? In that culture, 
to you know kind of push off the servant and just keep going and yeah i mean she was focused on getting help from elisha yeah this guy makes me think too of the new testament i forget where it is where they talk about um i think it's one of the St. Paul's letters where they talk about the woman bringing um their family to religion and like helping with the faith like it seems like she's really the operator here of she's one who recognizes elisha as somebody special yeah in a spiritual way, and she's the one saying to her husband, how about we set up this room? Like, she's still going through him, but she's the one who's guiding their family to that. Yes. And so it makes me think of in the New Testament, this idea of, hey, like, you should be bringing your family along spiritually. Like Lydia in the book of Acts is, she makes me think of Lydia, which um, Tuesday was uh, the Faithful Women Day. It was uh, Lydia, Tabitha, and Phoebe, the, de the deaconess. And so, you know, there is that, right? Like, you, you, this is, you catch a glimpse, like a shadow of, of what's going to happen in the New Testament. And it's almost like not improper, it almost feels like not improper for her to be doing these things that otherwise would be kind of culturally probably off because she's doing it for day's sake. Uh huh. I don't know, like, it's, it's not like Elisha says, well, why are you talking to me directly or why are you going over your husband's head? It's like, it's like this is an okay way to do this. Yeah, it's like you're getting a glimpse of the fruit of the gospel, right? Where uh, there is a freedom in approaching holy things. And not needing a mediator. What's that? And not needing a mediator. Yeah, not needing a mediator. It's like, here it is, come. Go running towards it. Grab a hold of it. Don't be shy, right? That kind of thing. Yes. I find it interesting. It says she caught hold of his feet. So yes. already then a tie to the New Testament. I mean, she didn't hit him head on. Right. I get a visual of her almost being bowed down. Kind of like the woman with the flow of blood when she grabs the robe, she comes behind and gets down, right? It's the same. And that, you wonder, like, boy, how this is all connected. You can see it. Yes, Kathy. Uh, this really speaks to me today because uh, as I was reading this and seeing her say twice, it's all right. Uh, how often I, <laughs> I just start grabbing anybody to express my worry about something. I'm like, this is, this is happening. And, I, and she just, she doesn't start telling her husband, oh my gosh, he just died. What are we gonna, what are we gonna do? Oh my gosh. She just says, I'm going to the, I'm going to the man with the answers. Yeah. I'm going right there. I'm not gonna stop and worry out loud. I'm not gonna, I'm not going to pause in my mission to go to someone I know can do something about this. Yeah. And it just convicts me to stop, <laughs> stop taking the left turn and right turn on my way to the man with the answers. Yeah. It's, it is like the woman with the issue of blood. She's just like, I'm, I've been to the doctor. I've been to this doctor. I've been to this person. I've told everybody about my problem. I'm not, I'm going to shut up now and I'm gonna go grab just the hem of his garment. Yeah. She fell at his feet, just grabbed his feet. 
uh, I just think I need to do that. Yeah. Well, it, and this is what part of what the sacramental character of the scriptures is to get us to think about this and where do we go for these kinds of things? Because where do you turn when you're worried and you're at wit's end or you know you have nowhere else to turn? What do you do? And it makes me think, I mean, it's not in the text, but it stands to reason, don't you think, that part of why she wanted a, a room for him to stay when he came by was maybe she wanted to listen to him teach. Maybe she wanted some of that, and maybe she knew some things because of it that leads her to say, I am going to go. You know, she doesn't even, right? She wastes no time. She's like, I'm not, I don't have time to explain it all to my husband and deal with the cultural things that might come into play. I'm just going to go. Oh, here's Gehazi. I'm not going to get into it. I just got to get to the source, to the center. And notice verse 25. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. She goes to the mountain. Now, why does she go to the mountain? And this is why I think he taught her things. She knew things. Right. Well, okay, so jot these down. 1 Kings 18.19 and then 2 Kings 2.25. So 1 Kings 18.19, 2 Kings 2.25. So if you go back to 1 Kings 18.19, look at what this says. 1 Kings 18.19. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And then what do you have? You have that whole account, the competition between Elijah and the prophets of Baal and the sacrifice and hey, pour more water on that sacrifice. Hey, pour more water. Hey, douse that thing. And let's see if it can, let's see if, you're, if Baal can burn it, burn it up. And nothing happens. And then Elijah calls all the people, or calls the people together. And then he prays to God. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. So, and then, so that happens. And then, in 1 Kings 19.9, after all that happens, then he goes, to, Elijah goes to a cave in 1 Kings 19.9, stays in it, and the word of the Lord came to him. So he has this counsel of Yahweh moment after that. So revelation. And then you go to 2 Kings 2, 25. 
when Elisha succeeds Elijah, so the handing over of the prophetic ministry, he then goes in verse 25 to Mount Carmel. So what this is, Mount Carmel becomes, I think, known as the place where God does his work. He defeats the prophets of Baal. This is where the, uh, the prophets of God lodge. This is where things happen. And as we know, in the Old Testament, things happen on mountains. We, then we get to the gospel and we see the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain and there's Moses and Elijah. So mountains are highly significant places for God's revelation and God's blessing. So she goes to Mount Carmel. And, and, and I think this is like, so the sacramental nature of life of the church is you go to a place and it's at that, that place where God promises to be and do his work. That's where you go to have that color dust sprinkled and sprayed upon you. That's what she wants. She's going to a place. There's a prophet. There's God's favor. There's God's blessing. Yes? Where is Shunem supposed to have been? Because it could be like days to get to Mount Carmel, depending on where it's situated. Yeah, you know what? I don't have a map. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, there is no key on here to tell distance, but Mount Carmel's up here, and it's near Jezreel. Yeah. You know, maybe I can next week make a, a copy of a nice map and bring it and, and hand it out, and, and we can look at it and see where it is. Say that again. Four days. Oh, that would be interesting. Yeah. I mean, it always kind of in the Bible, you know, even when some of these armies go marching out, it makes it sound like oh yeah, and another hour or the place, and it might have taken weeks because they didn't have a book. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, this is. Right? It's, it's very possibly not an easy journey. Yes? I'm thinking again of what she was saying. She was saying all as well. She's not saying, I gotta go see and have my son resurrected. Yeah. No matter what's going on, all is well. That's a good point. The fact that my son just died. Yeah. She knows, right? All is well. It's an expression of faith. She knows. That's a powerful thing, right? She knows that these prophets can turn things around. But that's real, I mean, it's not me. She's not looking for that. She's right. not, because if she was looking for it, it would be here. She's just. She knows it's going to be okay, is what you're saying. Yes, yeah. Her son is dead. That's an interesting thought. And all is still well. Boy, that's, 
That's, that is really a statement of faith to be able to say that, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that is very powerful. And I wonder, real quickly, I see I'm out of time. Uh, you know, so here's what's interesting about the Old Testament in the Greek, what we call the Septuagint, is in this verse, verse 26, when she's saying all is well, she's saying um, everything is at peace. She uses the word peace. That's a big difference than all is well. Boy, isn't that something? Yes. She kind of let Elijah have it. Well, like, she kind of let Elijah have it. Yeah. Wait, so it's not like she's just like all good to him. She tells him directly, "Hey, you got my hopes up, and now you're crushing them." It's not like she's just like, "I'm okay with it." She is seeking. Yeah. Just let it let it go. And she also laid him in Elijah's bed. Yes. Boy. See, we're, we're not even halfway through this narrative yet, so. You know why? Because it's a mother and her son, and we're all mothers. That's exactly right, and this is a great, this is a great text. Yeah, but I mean, you know, mother's love is never. That's right. That's right. Don't get in the way of a mother's love, right? <laughs> all right. That's, that's true. We're not all mothers. That is true. That's true. That is true. But you were, but you had mother. That is true. A holy mother, see? <laughs> that is right. Your mother in more ways than you realize, Carol. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, okay, so uh, if, if you think about it, bring the handout back. I'll have more next week. Uh, we'll continue. I'll try to get answers to some of the questions that you had. They were very good questions and uh, much more to talk about. So let's close with the collect and end with the benediction. Almighty God, you chose your servants, Simon and Jude, to be numbered among the glorious company of the apostles. As they were faithful and zealous in their mission, so may we with ardent devotion make known the love and mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace.